0: IGIL listeners i'm dan trevanian program director for the institute for migrant rights this is the IGIL podcast bringing you interviews with the world's leading scholars addressing current debates and sharing global perspectives we're excited to bring you a two-part mini-series on child marriage for our first episode we interview dr john mbaku Professor of Economics at Weber State University. Born in Cameroon, John is a licensed US attorney, non-resident fellow of the Brookings Institution, and has consulted for the UN Economic Commission for Africa. Today, we discuss John's recent paper titled, International Law and Child Marriage in Africa. We delve into the topic and John explains how courts in African countries are addressing the problem of child marriage and developing the international mechanisms that impact on the rights of children. As always, listen until the end to find the answers. Welcome John to the Idjil Podcast, we're delighted to have you on. You've recently written a paper called International Law and Child Marriage in Africa, to start us off, could you please tell us the background that led you to write this paper?
1: Okay, I um, my background is in economics and uh, law. And I do a lot of work in, uh, in Africa, mostly on uh, economic development and governance. And one of the things that I've discovered over the years is that uh, a lot of young people, especially young girls are deprived of the opportunity to go to school and get an education uh, so that they can grow up to become productive members of society. And part of the reason is that there in Africa a lot of uh, uh, customs and traditional practices that make it very difficult for girls to go to school. And one of, the thing, one of them is the fact that many of these girls are forced into marriage very early on uh, before they, they have an opportunity to go to school. And so many of them end up uh, in situations in which they become very poor. And so many of these girls come from poor families and the parents think that by marrying them up very early, They're actually helping them because the idea there is that uh, if you're a girl from a poor family, uh, you could be married to someone, even if that person is as old as your father, uh, you could be married to that person because that person is richer than your family, and that would help the young girl uh, get out of poverty and also help the family. But the problem is that most of these uh, older people who are marrying these young girls, uh, they may be rich by, village, um, by the conditions in the rural area, but they are not any more richer than most of the people that uh, the girls are taken away from. And so what happens is that in the end, the, the young girl uh, ends up uh, living a life of uh, great poverty And the system continues to uh, be uh, duplicated virtually uh, in almost every uh, country in Africa. And that creates a lot of problems because these girls don't have an opportunity to grow up, to become leaders in industry, leaders in government, uh, leaders in society, and so on and so on, because they are deprived of an opportunity to get an education. So what I decided to do was to... Kind of uh, look at this uh, issue in a more academic manner and actually do some research and see what what is going on in the in the continent that's why i wrote the paper
0: thanks for that john could you tell us a little bit about the role of international organizations like the united nations have they brought positive contributions to this issue what's your perspective
1: The thing is that international organizations like the U.N. or the African Union, uh, they have uh, laws and regulations that have something to do with uh, human rights. For example, the U.N. has uh, the uh, convention on uh, uh, the rights of children, which specifically provides children with certain rights. Now, because... uh, That convention is an international convention, and because the UN doesn't have a government that can go into a country and tell them what to do, what I'm arguing in the paper is that in the end, uh, implementing these rights for children is the job of the national government. So if you go to a country like Nigeria, or a country like Cameroon, or Ghana, South Africa. It is the a job of the government of those countries to make sure that the rights of children are uh, recognized and uh, um, respected and also enforced. Many national constitutions uh, do provide for the rights of children. For example, the South African constitution uh, has a Bill of Rights that protects children. The question is, uh, will those rights be uh, protected when it is necessary to do so? And of course, whether or not those rights are protected is not just dependent on the fact that the Constitution says uh, children have rights. It's also dependent on the nature of the judicial system in that country, whether it is independent enough to be able to uh, do the job that it's supposed to do, and also on the police, because if children are having problems and they go to the police and the police refuse to investigate the issue, then that would be the end of it. So uh, the, the local governments, the national governments are very critical in making sure that these rights are uh, upheld and that children are not allowed to go through these uh, uh, problems. But. The international organizations are also very important because they are the ones who are in a position to force uh, member countries to uh, make sure that the rights that are contained in the treaties that they have signed are also enforced locally. Because, you see, you, you when you think in terms of international uh, treaties, like the Convention on the Rights of the, uh, the Child, that is an international treaty that has been signed by a lot of countries. But that doesn't mean that the rights contained in that treaty uh, are rights that someone living in a country like Nigeria or Ghana can simply go to court and say, look, uh, my rights are spelled out in the in this international uh, convention or international treaty are not being enforced. Because in order for those rights to be enforced, the the country then must have to uh, uh, recognize those rights and make them enforceable in local law. And that's where it becomes very important for local countries to then incorporate those laws into their constitutions and make sure that the rights represented in these international treaties are also available to people locally so people can go to court and have those rights enforced.
0: You briefly mentioned the African Union. Could you tell us a little bit more about their role? Have they intervened in this issue?
1: Okay, well, the African Union is very important because it functions very similar to the way the UN functions, except that it, its primary objective is uh, 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 Africa. Uh, the, the African Union also has a similar convention, uh, the African uh, Charter on the Rights of, on the Rights and Welfare of uh, uh, the Child, uh, which uh, most African countries have uh, signed to. It contains uh, the same rights, uh, mostly. It contains, most of the rights contained in this uh, uh, African Child Convention or Charter, uh, also the rights that are contained in the uh, convention, the UN Convention on the Rights of the the Child. And it is the duty of the African Union to make sure that its member states uh, uh, enforce these rights. And one way to do so is to uh, encourage the member states to take the rights that are contained in that convention, in that treaty, and then uh, incorporate them into national uh, constitutions so that those rights become what uh, lawyers call justiciable, meaning that those rights, someone in that country, a young girl in that country, can go to a court in that country and say, look, this right is being violated. one of the problems you have is that if a if there is if a right is only contained in a treaty, it might be very difficult. Depending on the way the 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 uh, uh, constitution of that country is, it may be difficult for someone in that country to invoke that right in a court of in a court of law. But to to solve that problem, each African country is expected to take those. Uh, 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 That international uh, uh, treaty, take all the laws there that protect children, incorporate them into their own constitution through national legislation, for example, and make sure that those rights become rights that can be invoked by a child living in that country. If they do that, then it will now be left to the judicial system in that country to uh, enforce those rules and provide protections for the children. So the African Union has uh, a a very big role to play. Uh, It is unfortunate that the African Union uh, has not been actively doing so, but it is hoped that within the next couple of years, uh, especially with uh, uh, the program that the African Union came up with recently called Agenda 2000 and 63, uh, in that particular document, the African Union has uh, pledged to make sure that children are protected uh, in every country on the continent.
0: You raise an excellent point about having to localize international treaties into domestic laws. There are many different countries in Africa with diverse political systems. Some are more democratic, some are less democratic. How does this affect the issue of child marriage in a diverse continent like Africa?
1: It really doesn't matter whether a country is democratic or not uh, in Africa. The thing is that we have to understand that forcing girls to get married at an early age is a, it's very bad, not only for the girl, but also for society as a whole. If you consider the fact that uh, in, in every country on earth, girls make up uh, women, girls and women make up approximately 50 percent of the population by forcing girls to get married very early. From the point of view of economics, you are actually reducing your GDP, your your gross gross, uh, domestic product by a significant amount, because those girls who get married early don't have an opportunity to go to school uh, and develop the skills that will allow them to become productive adults. So you've, eventually, you've effectively eliminated a very significant uh, portion of your labor force. That's the first problem. The second problem has to do with the fact that if you look around the world, even though it's not occurring as it should, you see that women are very important in science and technology, in politics, in uh, social work, in all areas of endeavor. I mean, if you look at a country like India, the India and Sri Lanka had prime ministers who were women and who did very well. Uh, Liberia had a president who is a woman. Uh, the anti-apartheid movement in South Africa was influenced significantly by women, including uh, uh, the late Mrs. Mandela. And so, so one of the problems that is, you're seeing in Africa is that young girls who ordinarily would grow up to become very important leaders in industry and business are not given the opportunity to do so because they are being forced into child marriage. So that's a very serious problem for any country. Uh, And of course, as uh, society develops, and I've seen this in Africa, uh, as society develops, young men uh, normally don't want to marry illiterate women you see so what is going to happen is that as uh, if you are only sending young men to school the question is who who are they going to get married when they become eligible to get married because a guy uh, a young man with with a phd is not likely to go and marry a girl who never finished school and so this problem has to stop if you are looking at it only from the point of view of economics yeah. There are other problems, but the important thing is that for development in any African country, you want to make sure that all your children are educated, whether they are girls or boys, is irrelevant, because they are potential contributors to society that you're literally uh, not allowing uh, to develop simply because they are girls.
0: Thank you for bringing up other countries like India. This obviously isn't only an Africa problem. Could you tell us what's the role of culture in addressing this issue?
1: Okay, uh, culture is a very important contributor to child marriage because uh, throughout the world uh, there are uh, customs and religious practices that uh, force girls to get married early. Even though when you look at uh, um, some religious texts, you see that there is no place in those religious texts that say girls to marry early. It simply is a matter of interpretation. Because I've talked to some religious leaders in in Africa, in African countries, and they claim that the reason they want their girls to get married early is because they are afraid that the girls would, uh, if they allow the girls to to stay single, uh, they would develop immoral uh, uh, habits and become uh, uh, destroyed. Uh, they can get pregnant very early, outside wedlock, but you see, that that argument is not a very uh, convincing argument, and that has to do with the fact that girls don't get pregnant on their own. Uh, girls get pregnant because some man gets them pregnant. And so if you're going to put that entire uh, problem on a girl, why don't you tell the men? to stop getting these young girls pregnant. Uh, In other words, it's a two-way thing. And so uh, what you need to do is that getting the girl married early is not a good uh, uh, um, custom because you are violating the human rights, the individual liberties of the girl. And so if you look at international human rights instruments, Many of them argue that girls should, not be, uh, uh, allow, girls should not be treated differently from boys. And so if you're going to treat girls uh, the same, then why allow the boy to marry at 18 and then force the girl to marry at 15 or at, at 12 or 9? You should treat your children, whether they uh, girls or boys, equally and provide them with an opportunity to grow up. So my argument in the paper is that any tradition that disadvantage girls, any uh, traditional practice uh, that disadvantage girls, that does not treat girls the same as boys should be abolished or uh, uh, amended. So in many African countries, yes, you do have a lot of traditions that uh, say girls should marry uh, in some uh, cultures that are studied, uh, they say girls should marry as early as nine years old. That uh, is simply unreasonable. And so what, what I'm arguing in the paper is that uh, these traditions should be abolished. These religious practices should be abolished because they do not they are not in the best interests of uh, 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 children. So not all traditions are good. A lot of traditions are very good uh, in, in in Cameroon, for example, or in Nigeria. For example, there are a lot of traditions that allow a village to raise children so that uh, poor children are helped by rich families uh, and so on and so on. That's a good tradition. But the tradition that forces girls to marry early is not a good tradition. And I think that... Uh, we should follow international law and put the marriage age at 18, years or, or, uh, uh, at 18 years and allow girls to have the opportunity to go to school and develop the skills that they need later on to be able to become productive adults.
0: The two countries that you go in depth on in your article are Tanzania and Zimbabwe. Can you tell us more about those cases? What makes these countries distinctive?
1: Well, what makes them distinctive is that uh, judges in these countries were uh, progressive enough to understand that uh, the the traditions, the traditional laws in those countries were treating girls uh, differently from boys. They were forcing girls to marry early placing them in a position in which they were not able to to develop the skills that they needed to survive as adults. And since the governments of those countries had constitutions that said girls and boys should be treated equally. The judges in those countries were say, okay, if girls, if boys and girls are going to be treated equally, then why have a different age for girls to get married and a different age for boys to marry, get married. So when the opportunity came, and this case came before the courts, the court basically looked at international law, looked at cases in other countries and concluded that those laws were not uh, um, uh, in line with the constitutions or with the Bill of Rights of those countries because the Bill of Rights, uh, in those countries, says uh, the Bill of Rights in, in uh, Tanzania, for example, uh, says that uh, there is equality between uh, 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 men and women, and girls, of course, come under women. And so, what the court did was to say, if you if you have a, a tradition or you have a religious practice, as the case in Tanzania, if you have a tradition or a religious practice that Discriminates against girls, then you need to. Then that tradition is contrary to the Bill of Rights, and it it is not valid, and it should be gotten rid of. And so that is very important because it allows uh, local judges to be able to interpret, uh, uh, to use international law as a tool of interpretation to interpret the Bill of Rights, to interpret the Constitution. To make sure that local laws are in line with international practices, especially with respect to uh, uh, the protection uh, of human rights.
0: If you look into the future, are you optimistic that we will eliminate these practices from the world?
1: Uh, I know that there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of uh, efforts around the world, especially on the part of. Uh, Uh, various traditions and cultures to say, we don't want you to change anything because it is important to us religiously or it is important to us culturally. But what we have to understand is that uh, society, in order for society to move ahead, cultures must also move ahead with them. And we are not trying to condemn cultures. We are simply trying to allow, to, to, to make cultures and religious practices to understand that um, as the world develops and things change, it's important for us to move along. You don't have to give up your culture. I mean, when you think about it, uh, as, as I was talking to somebody in Kenya the other day, I was telling them that look, before computers came, your culture didn't have computers. But almost everybody in your culture, including the chief of your village, now has a cell phone. It it wasn't part of your culture. So you didn't come out and start condemning the cell phone. But you see, you adopted the cell phone and computers because you realize that they improve your, your standard of living. So one of the things that we have to understand is that there were practices that we used to have in our culture years ago, but which we've really, really realized now that those cultures were harming our people. They were putting putting down our people, preventing them from developing, moving ahead. And you see, this is what child marriage does. We have recognized today that child marriage, which we thought was uh an effort to protect our girls is not actually protecting our girls; it's putting our girls in danger. We now know, we now have medical evidence to show that girls who get married early, they get pregnant, and because the birth canal has not yet developed well enough, they end up having a lot of health problems. Uh, this uh, obstetric uh, uh, fistula, which occurs in Africa a lot, and condemns girls to a life, a long life. Uh, I mean a life of suffering we now know all those problems. So given the fact that we now have all this information, we now have all this knowledge, it's incumbent upon us to abolish this tradition because it is not helping our children and provide our children with opportunities uh, that can make them have a good life which is what we want for our children. Everybody around the world, no matter what the culture is, wants their children to have a good life. Since we know these problems, why don't we, uh, since we know these issues, why don't we adjust our cultures to make sure that we don't continue to subject our children to uh, a, a life full of suffering.
0: Thank you for addressing these issues with us, John. It's been enlightening. To finish us off, can you tell us about your personal story? As an African who now has a distinguished position, who's uh, been an academic at some of the great institutions in the world, what would you say to the future citizens of developing countries who may wish to follow your path?
1: Well, what I would say to young people grow up, whether you're in uh, Africa or in Asia, or Latin America, anywhere in the world, is that one of the things you need to keep in mind is that if you have an opportunity to go to school, uh, one of the things that you would have have in your mind would be, I want to go to school, get a good education, get a good job, make a lot of money, and live a comfortable life. What you need to keep in mind is that uh, how society will remember you is not that you were the richest person in your community, society will remember you because of the things that you did to improve the standard of living in your community. And so if you you do uh, find yourself in a position in which you are able to conduct research and produce results that can help improve the quality of life for people around the world, That is what you should do. That is why I always tell my colleagues who are professors here in the U.S. from Bangladesh, from Sri Lanka, from India, from from, uh, Ghana, and so from all these countries around the world, what I tell them is that you are here and you are making a good living. But you need to remember that the education that you have it's a tool that you can use to help improve the quality of life for other for people in other countries. And what you need to do is find some area of research that you are good at. Do that research and produce results that could provide for government officials in many countries around the world to develop policies that can help. The people who live in those countries and one of the things we need to keep in mind is that politicians are not as bad as we think they are there are a lot of politicians in countries around the world that are really trying to improve the conditions in their countries the problem is they don't have the research that is necessary for them to implement the kinds of policies that may help people and so this becomes the important thing for us to do. That is why I was very impressed with your journal because uh, the, we don't have a lot of journals coming out of uh, developing countries that tackle issues that are important both domestically and globally, you see? And and so having a journal like, like the Indonesian uh, Journal of International Comparative Law is very important because it allows people living in developing countries to pick up a copy of the journal and look at it and say, oh, I didn't realize that this problem is not only in my country, this problem is also in other countries. And so we are in this together. And one uh, one thing that I've always emphasized is that Having a journal located in a developing country is very important because the, the problems of developing countries quite often are very unique and very difficult for someone living very far away, say in the US or in Canada, to understand because their culture is completely different. And so when they see a problem in a developing country, say in Africa, they they really don't appreciate it as much as they would if they were living in that part of the world. And so having a journal that is located in a developing country that deals with issues that are not only local, but issues that are international uh, and tries to tie the two together becomes very important. And so it is incumbent upon those of us living abroad to support the efforts of uh, institutions uh, like the one that you have in Indonesia, because I think that uh, the Institute for My, uh, Migrant Rights uh, Studies that you, you you hate, it's a very important uh, institution. It's a very important organization. And this journal is also a very important tool because it provides an opportunity for voices that other words would, would not be heard uh, uh, because the the... Uh, people are likely to do research that is not of no interest to journals located in developed countries
0: that's dr john mbaku explaining child marriage in africa how economics and law converge to highlight the wrongs of child marriage this was the first part of our mini-series on the rights of children please tune in to the second part with Mies grin an anthropologist who has researched child marriage extensively in Indonesia, who will explain the issue from a different perspective. The Ijil podcast is an initiative of the Institute for Migrant Rights, with production by Dan Trevanion and Widianto. Special thanks to Sarah Afin and Pran Iskandar. You can learn more at ijil.org. That's i-j-i-l.org. I'm Dan Trevanion. Rate and follow this podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Tune into the next episode for another global perspective.